be seated. Oh 
Jesus, we say thank you that you endured the scorn of the cross for the joy set before you, the joy of a restored relationship between the Father and your kids. And so, Father, today we pray, saying thank you for giving your firstborn for what was best giving him for us and I pray today Father that you would let that come alive in every heart and every mind and every environment we have this weekend may you speak the truth to our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was 17 years old, as a junior in high school, I heard the governor of my state at that time, Louisiana, stand up and in a microphone, in a public speech, make a statement, and he said that Jesus Christ did not die. He merely swooned, entered into a grave, came back into a conscious state, and walked out of a grave. As a 17-year-old kid, over 20 years ago, I, I found myself really ticked. And in the months following, I found myself in medical school libraries, on university campuses in the libraries doing in-depth research on Roman crucifixion and the human anatomy. And I've been studying this for over 20 years now, 24 to be exact, and, and has spent a lot of energy and a lot of time studying Roman crucifixion and studying what happens to a, a body during Roman crucifixion. I've taken five, four trips to Israel. I'll take my fifth one uh, this Christmas, and I've taken many of you with me. would love to take uh, the rest of you with me because those trips have changed my life. And actually, the brochures came in this week, and I think they may be outside. But walking the dirt and the rock where Jesus walked and seeing the places where Jesus was crucified have changed my life forever. And today what I want to do on this Easter Sunday is I want to show you what I found and I want to show you why I believe and I want to show you literally what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, it's not just a necklace, it's not just a charm you would put on a necklace or a bracelet. It's not just something that the radical would tattoo somewhere on their body. It is a symbol of a very significant thing that happened in a real place on a real day where a real person named Jesus died. And I want to show you exactly what happened on the cross. And when our guys sat down to make the video you just watched right here on this stage, it's hard to believe they made that on this stage. And as they decided to make that video, we had a decision to make. Do we want to clean it up or do we want to show it for what it is? And when you speak about cleaning something up, I mean, apparently a lot of stories have been cleaned up to make them child-friendly by the help of Disney. And a lot of stories have been muddied up by the, by the help of Disney. But some of them were really, really terrible stories that have been cleaned up to make them child-friendly. I, I was watching TV the other day and heard uh, a preview for Little Red Riding Hood come on and thought, man, finally a movie I could take the kids to. And then I turned and looked at the preview. 
It looked more like Silence of the Lambs than it did uh, Little Red Riding Hood. And I just thought, and I thought, oh, you know. I don't want to take my kids to see that. But the truth of the matter is, is a whole bunch of stories have been cleaned up by Disney to make them child-friendly. The Grimm's stories, Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella, Rapunzel. Grim stories that Disney has cleaned up to make child-friendly. And, and as I've thought about that, I think maybe what the devil has done is, is that he's taken the message of the cross and he's cleaned it up. And he's tried to make it child-friendly. And when you take the message of the cross and when you take the images of what actually happened on that cross and you make them child-friendly, I think what happens is you, you prevent people from becoming his children. Because he doesn't want us to see what really happened there. The devil is intent on us not knowing exactly and really what took place before, during, and after the cross of Jesus. And today I want to show you what really happened using that three-part outline before, during, and after. And I want to walk through it step by step because I don't want to look away. And it's not my goal today to clean it up and... As we talk about before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it began the night before for Jesus when he initiated what we call the Lord's Supper. We did that together last Sunday. For them, it was not just the Lord's Supper, it was the Last Supper, and they were doing the Passover celebration together, and Jesus told a couple of his disciples, go into the city, and and you'll see somebody, and, and follow him, and ask him, where's the room where the Lord can do the Passover meal with his disciples, and he took them into a large upper room, which I've taken some of you into a large upper room that probably sits on the very site where the Last Supper happened. And they did that meal together. And Judas left to go betray Jesus and turn him into the religious leaders and teachers of the day. And and Jesus and and the other disciples went out of that room and went out of the city gate of Jerusalem and, and, and walked around the old wall up onto the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a small mountain with olive trees all over it. Well, they call it the Mount of Olives. And, and, and there's a garden in the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means press. An olive press or a, or a vine press, a, a wine press, probably in this case an olive press because it was an olive grove. I don't know if you've ever looked at or studied how ancients would press olive oil, but the way they would do that is they had a trough about 10 feet in diameter, uh, about this wide, that made a big circle, made out of stone or rock. And, And they would take what's known as a millstone, which is a big wheel, made out of the same rock with a hole in the middle of it, and they would take a branch and they would run it through that hole uh, uh, on the wheel, and then they would attach it to an animal or maybe a servant who who would take that and walk in circles around that, rolling that wheel over the olives that were laid in that trough. And, And the olive oil that would be pressed out would run down a slide into a basin where they would collect the olive oil. And if you know anything about olive oil, the first time around the press, what comes out is known as extra virgin olive oil, which is the highest quality olive oil that comes out at the very first press. And and then to get more, they would run around (coughs) a second time. And as they would run around the olives a second time, more oil would come, which is high quality olive oil. And then a third time, the animal would circle 
and press the oil out of the olives, creating the lowest quality olive oil because literally pieces of olive would be mashed down into the oil in that third press around. As Jesus and his disciples marched up onto the Mount of Olives that night, he literally was putting himself under the press where his life was going to be pressed out of him. If you read the Gospels, and I'm going to be in all four Gospels today, uh, bringing them together, and, and as you read the Gospels, you see what happens is Jesus went with his disciples, and he took some, and he said, stay here and pray, and he went a little further and, and prayed by himself, and he went and put himself under the press, and he came back, and he said to his disciples as he found them asleep, can you not pray with me? And then he went a second time back in and he prayed again and put himself literally under the press again. And he came back a third time. And as he came back a third time, three times, he put himself under that press on his knees praying to the Father. And what was he praying in those moments? Is there any other way, Daddy? Any other way but to go to the cross? If there's any other way, please. But if there's no other way, not my will, but your will, be done. And as he got on his knees, the Bible says that he sweat drops like blood. Physicians today describe that with a word called hematridosis, which means that you are in such agony and such focus that your arteries and veins and vessels actually release blood into your sweat glands. And you sweat blood. And Jesus, for the joy set before him, a restored relationship with the Father and his people, for the joy set before him endured the scorn of the cross, and he actually sweat blood in that moment talking to his daddy. The first time I ever went to Israel was in 2000. About six weeks after Catherine was born, which Meredith greatly appreciated. And I... I uh, took a group and went into Israel. And while we were at the Garden of Gethsemane, we bribed a, a Catholic priest to let us into a private garden in the Garden of Gethsemane because that's how I roll. <laughs> and I wanted my group to have a chance to worship in the garden by themselves without all of the tourists. And as we went behind that gate and shut it behind us, we laid down under those olive trees, many of which have been carbon dated to be over 2,000 years old, which means one of those trees or one of those stumps, Jesus was kneeling beside and praying against as he was praying those prayers and he was sweating drops like blood. And, and on that trip, we had a botanist with us. And as we got up off of our knees, we, we were laying in this clover. It was springtime and everything was blooming. And as we got up off of our knees, the clover was everywhere. And the botanist looked at the clover, which millions of three-leaf clovers, one in a million with four leaves, and, and it looked just like our clover, except for there's red dots all over it. And she asked our Jewish guide and said, I've never seen clover like this anywhere. I've never studied it, never heard of it. Tell me about this clover. And our Jewish guide said, to our knowledge, it only grows on two places on the planet, right here in the Garden of Gethsemane and over on the path to the high priest here in Jesus' day, Caiaphas' house, which we're going to get to in a moment. And a Jewish man looked at our group and said, we believe the Son of God sweat his blood on this clover and stained it for all eternity. Last year on our trip, we found a third place where that clover grows at a place called Golgotha. 
And Jesus sweat his blood. And the crucifixion had begun for him as they came and arrested him. And the movies have lied to you. They've said it was Roman guards. It wasn't Roman guards that came to arrest Jesus. When you read the Bible, it was Jewish people that came to arrest Jesus. It was the temple guards, the temple police. It was the high priest involved in this scenario. And they came at night as to not incite a rebellion because people loved Jesus and were following Jesus. And so Judas betrayed Jesus in that garden. And they took Jesus and they put him on trial for his life. And in the trial that he faced that night, there were two phases to it. The first phase of the trial was the Jewish phase. And in the Jewish phase, they took him to Annas' house. Annas was the former high priest. He was the father-in-law, many think, of Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. Annas was like the Yoda of high priests in that day. And they said, we want to go see him. And they took him to his house first. And Annas asked Jesus, Is it true that you're teaching you're the son of God? That you are the savior of the world? That you are the Messiah? That you are the king of the Jews? Are you teaching that? And Jesus said, what I've taught, I've taught openly. I taught it in the crowds. I've taught it in the synagogue. I've taught it in the temple. And the man sitting beside him hit him in the face and said, you ought to show more respect to the true high priest, not knowing he just hit the high priest of all high priests in the face. And the Bible says that Annas then had him transferred to Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas' house is still standing today. And in Caiaphas' house today, there is underneath it a well or a dungeon that is almost as deep as this building is tall, 40, 50 feet. Maybe a little less than that deep. And now they've cut stairs around the edge of the uh, well down to the bottom so that you can go down in. And when you go down into the well, there are geological phenomenons on the side of that well that archaeologists cannot explain. It's as if the image of a man on his knees praying is burned into the rock. And many scholars believe that this is where Jesus spent his last night alive, in that cold, wet, dark, lonely place in that well underneath Caiaphas' house. First time I went, I went in the spring, and in the spring, the Jews have a moment where they observe 10 minutes of silence in honor of all of the Holocaust victims. Six million Jews that were slaughtered viciously and needlessly. And that morning when we awoke, we we got a piece of paper under our hotel door that said, Sometime during the morning, a siren will sound all over the country of Israel. And when the sirens sound, we want you to observe 10 minutes of silence. We could have been anywhere on the tour that day when those sirens went off, but we were in that well. And 10 minutes of pure silence is an eternity for ADD people like me. In that cold, wet, dark, lonely place where Jesus spent his last night alive thinking about the six million Jews who were killed. But my mind went to one Jew who gave his life for the world. And when the Jews had gotten done with their side of the trial, they took him to the Roman phase of the trial where they took him and put him before a man named Pilate who was the Roman governor over that area of the Roman province which Israel was a part of. 
The Jews didn't go into Pilate's quarters because the Passover was coming and they didn't want to be defiled. So they stood outside and as they stood outside, Pilate came out onto the balcony and they had a trial where Jesus was put on trial for his life. And not knowing what to do with him, he sent him to Herod who sent him back. And Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus, saw no reason to kill Jesus, but but the pressure of the Jews was great. The reason Herod was in town, because they were afraid of all these Jews, millions of Jews coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, that, that a rebellion could happen. And so they wanted to prevent a coup. And so all of the Roman officials would come to Jerusalem during the Passover to prevent that from happening, but afraid that he would incite the Jews to rebellion. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll beat him greatly. And so they took Jesus into that torture chamber called, or a soldier called a lictor. Took a weapon called a cat of nine tails, which was a handle with nine strips of leather. And at the end of each of these strips of leather was a conglomeration about the size of your fist made of metal, rock, and bone. And they would take the victim, and they wouldn't just stand him straight up. They would take him and they would stretch him over a boulder or a stump and tie him around it so that every muscle in his back was pulled tight, stretched, and exposed. Now, they knew from a whole lot of experience that when you hit a man 40 times, you would kill him. So as an act of mercy, they hit Jesus 39 times. And they would stand, history says, that they would stand on this side and they would slap and rip and slap and rip. And just as those claws would grab flesh, it would rip the flesh off of the body of Jesus Christ. And when they did all the damage they could do from this side, they would come and stand behind him and they would slap and rip and slap and rip. And they weren't careful. They didn't care if they hit him in the back of the head or on the bottom or around on the front side. And then when they'd done all the damage they could do from these two angles, they would stand on this side and slap and rip. And history says, that when they would get done with the damage that they could possibly do from those three angles, they would come and stand and face the criminal, looking into his eyes, in this case the person of Jesus Christ, taking that weapon, throwing it over his head, onto the back of his scalp, ripping his scalp off the back of his head, and 39 times they beat him and pummeled him. And the Bible says that Jesus was unrecognizable. And when you look at that, that doesn't mean that Mary walked by and said, is that my boy or is that someone else? That means that it was indistinguishable that he was a human being. That means as people walked by, the question was, is that a human or an animal? I've never seen that video. I've never seen Hollywood try to show us exactly what happened to Jesus. They put then a blindfold on him or a hood and they began to punch him and say, Jesus, if you really are the king of the kings, tell us who's hitting you. They spit on him and they ripped his beard out of his face. And then they stood him up in front of that crowd And Pilate asked the greatest question ever been asked. Which is still the greatest question today in all of our environments, wherever you're watching from today. What then shall I do with Jesus? And as I asked that question at the 730 service, the thunder rolled in the sky above us. 
And on that day, from the back of the crowd to the front of the crowd, it began to roll like thunder as the crowd began to chant, Kill him! Crucify him! Murder him! And not knowing what to do, Pilate took a basin of water and said, and he washed his hands and he said, take him and do with him as you wish. And the way that they would do it in that day is they would take the horizontal piece and put it on his shoulders, take his arms and tie his arms to the crossbeam, then tie a rope around his waist and lead him through the city streets of Jerusalem. And the reason they would lead a criminal that was on his way to be crucified through the city streets was crime prevention. It was the Romans' way of saying, if you commit a crime here in our part of the world, this is what happens to you. And today, many of you have been with me in the streets of the old city, and as you go into the streets of the old city, uh, they're very narrow, about as wide as this aisle. Uh, Maybe a Fiat could fit down the middle of that. But cars aren't coming and going both ways in the old city streets of Jerusalem. People walk. And there's shop after shop after shop after shop. You can go into the Jewish quarter. You can go into the Arab quarter. And in those streets, shop after shop selling pita bread or baklava or feta cheese or olive wood trinkets and dreidels and Israeli t-shirts and just up and down the street still to this day. And in that day, it was not much different. And merchants were doing business and men were selling and, and things were being traded and, and the Bible says that Jesus fell. And I, I can probably imagine one of the soldiers jerked the rope and he fell. Do you know what happens to you when your hands are immobilized behind a timber that is placed behind your head and you fall? His face into the gravel and into the pavement. They kicked him and they mocked him and they spit on him. Hail the bloody one. Many scholars believe that when Jesus fell in that moment, that the weight of that timber on his shoulders, as it smashed with his ribcage, bruised his heart, crushed his heart, which is prophecy. And Jesus couldn't carry the cross the rest of the way, not because he was a wimp, but because he'd already been beaten with an inch of his life and probably lost most of his blood already. A man named Simon from a place called Cyrene was there and was forced to carry the cross the rest of the way for Jesus. And he carried it to a place called Golgotha. I will never forget the first time I saw Golgotha. We were not even at Golgotha. We were at the garden tomb. And at the garden tomb, there's a balcony with a gazebo. And I'm standing there waiting my turn because the tomb at the garden tomb is small. Only three, four, five people can go in at a time. And so I was waiting my turn. I'm sitting in the gazebo reading my Bible and just meditating on where we are and what is happening. And and I'm looking off the cliff at a bus station. And all of a sudden, my eyes come up the wall of the cliff. And I saw it. And it looked exactly like a skull. In the side of the hill, a a master's degree, a bachelor's degree, a doctorate degree, all in theology and and church growth and advancement. Nobody ever told me that Golgotha looks like a skull. And I remember weeping and and Avi, our Jewish guy, coming in and putting his hand around me and saying, Alex, what's the matter? And I said, that's it, isn't it? And he said, yes, that's Golgotha. History says that they didn't crucify people up on a cliff or on a hill. 
and, and there certainly weren't sheep gathered around in an English meadow like you've seen in paintings. The, the Romans would crucify criminals on an intersection, on a busy street and busy intersection right outside of a city gate. Again, on street level, so that everyone coming and going would see it. That's crime prevention. And they put Jesus on that cross, and the way they would do that is they would nail his body to the cross, and, and, and uh, they, they wouldn't put the nails in the middle of the hand, in the palm of the hand. It would rip right through the flesh of the hand. But they would put it right here at the base of the hand, which we would call the wrist today, so that these two bones that make up your forearm form a hook or a V or a U right here so that your hands could hook onto those nails, severing your median nerve, which is excruciating pain, I've been told. A few years ago, I, I took two kids to a camp with me. I've taken one kid to a camp with me many times, but that was the first time I'd ever taken two. My mother-in-law was opposed to it, and I told her to shut up. <laughs> she got to sit in the stands. She was not a coach in this team. And, and, and that I took these kids to the uh, camp in Pennsylvania, and after he'd done a 1,000-foot zip line and a 100-foot climbing tower and a screamer swing that was a few hundred feet in the air, Eli made his way to an 11-foot monkey bars. And as he fell off of the monkey bars because they had been poorly constructed, he got to the end and there was a wall. And there was nowhere for him to go. Now, 11 feet is pretty high when you're six. And so he tried to go backwards on the monkey bars and he fell off and he caught himself like this and it snapped his arm and both bones were sticking straight up like this. And in his tears he came over to me as a six year old and he said, Daddy, I think I busted my arm. I said, I don't think we need an x-ray. But those two bones formed that hook, that V or U, that they would hook the arms on the, on the cross for the criminal. And then they would take it and maybe drive it behind the heel by the Achilles tendon, where is a conglomeration of nerves, into that beam. And, and, and the person would hang on the cross like this, and then they lifted that cross into a hole with an existing pulley system. The Old Testament says that every joint dislocated, but not a bone broken. And as the camera shifts from before to during the crucifixion, he hung on that cross with his hands stretched out, wet with spit and blood, bruised beyond recognition. He uttered some statements from the cross. And one of the statements he said was, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because theologically in that moment, what happened is Jesus not just took on our sin. Jesus literally became our sin. And a holy father could not look on sin. And in that moment, he turned his back on his son. And Jesus had never known separation from the Father. Jesus had never known the displeasure of the Father. But in that moment, Jesus identified with every sinner who has ever lived because God turned his back on his Son. Another statement that Jesus made on the cross was, Father, forgive them 
They don't know what they're doing. And in the Greek, that is in the imperfect tense, which means he said it and he kept on saying it. And when they drove the nail in his left hand, Father, and his right hand, Father, and his feet, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They hung Jesus on the cross between two criminals that day. And maybe the criminal on one side looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, if you're the king of the kings, you really are the son of God, get us down from here. Maybe the criminal on the other side looked and said, hey, why don't you shut up? Can't you see this man has done nothing to deserve death? He'd probably killed people before, and he'd never seen somebody die with that kind of dignity. And, and so he looked at Jesus, and he said, Jesus, when you come again, and he used a Greek word, parousia, when you come again in your parousia, when you come again in your kingdom, when you come again as the king of kings, would you remember me? And Jesus said, you're not going to have to wait that long. Today. Today. You will be with me in paradise. We know that Jesus was dehydrated. He said, I'm thirsty. And they took a hyssop branch, a soldier did, which is prophecy, Psalm 22, and they put a sponge on it and they held it up to his mouth. Some entrepreneur in the Roman world, watching the people at the public toilets cut out of rock and benches where people would sit on a toilet with a hole so that they could relieve themselves. Thought, here's a way for me to make money. And so he took a hyssop branch and he attached a sponge to the hyssop branch. And he would walk behind the public toilets, dipping that sponge in a bucket of vinegar, wiping the rear ends of the people as they relieved themselves in the toilet. And a soldier in that moment took a hyssop branch, put a sponge on the end of it, and held it to the mouth of the king of kings. And it was just enough moisture to wet the back of his mouth as he uttered the greatest words of all time. And he said, it is finished. Ninth grade girl, a few weeks ago, called me to interview me for her research paper. Cash at Hall, one of the last statements of Jesus. And she picked, it is finished. And she asked me the question on the phone. She said, Brother Alex, what was finished? The crucifixion was finished? Jesus and his band of followers, and you know, now he's dead and gone, so that whole little party, it's finished? No, 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 no. The payment for my guilt and sin was finished. And they put Jesus on that cross at 9 o'clock in the morning and at high noon when that sun should have grown at its hottest and brightest in that Middle Eastern climate. The Bible says that the sky grew completely pitch black and 
earth began to quake and the thunder began to roll and even nature was shocked that what was happening to Jesus, the one by whom and through whom it had been spoken into existence, the flowers and the birds and the air and the wind and the, was shocked. The way you die on a cross is you dehydrate. I'm sorry, you suffocate. And, and the reason you suffocate is because on a cross you cannot exhale. You can only inhale. And the way that you inhale with all of the weight of your body suspended on your ribcage and lungs is that you rise up on the weight of those nails and take in another breath and fall back down. And because you cannot exhale, your body begins to poison itself. And, and, and Jesus' body was poisoning itself. And you die through suffocation, which would be a horrible way to go. And the way that they would speed up the death process is they would take a sword or a spear and they would come and break the legs of the one hanging on the cross so that he could not rise up and take another breath and the death process would be speeded. And so they came and they broke the legs of the criminal on one side and they broke the legs of the criminal on the other side. But they came to Jesus. Executioners by trade. And they said, it's too late, he's already dead. Not a bone will be broken and my sacrificial lamb declared God the Father. And the other soldier said, no, 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 no. Pilate told us to make sure. The Jews wanted the bodies off the cross. Why? Passover was coming. They knew the scripture. They wanted no one to identify Jesus Christ as the Passover lamb, which he was. And so the soldier took a spear or a sword, and he shoved it under the ribcage into the heart of Jesus. John, the disciple, was standing there just a few feet away. And when you read John's account of what Jesus what happened in that moment is he said, I saw blood and I saw water. We sang a minute ago, when blood and water hit the ground. Now John didn't know 2,000 years ago what cardiologists would tell us today, that when a heart ruptures and, the, and a human dies, a man or a woman dies, that the red blood cells coagulate away from the white blood cells, and it appears as if there's blood and water. And John said, I saw both. And to Edwin Edwards, who was the governor of Louisiana when I was 17 years old, if we could get him the message in the Fort Worth State Penitentiary today. Jesus Christ did not swoon. Jesus Christ died. And I can only tell you the physical because I cannot paint for you the spiritual. That for your sin and my sin, Jesus died. For every willful act of sin you and I have ever or ever will commit, he died. For every bad attitude you and I have ever had, Jesus Christ died. And as the camera swings around and tries to view this crucifixion from after the fact, the way that history says that the Jews would do that is they would take the body and they would wash it and they would wrap it with strips of linen like a mummy and they would put myrrh and and spices and sawdust to push back the smell of death, and they would do that over and over and over again. And then they would take the body and they would lay it in a tomb. Poor people in caves. Rich people in tombs cut out of the rock where they'd paid a servant to do that. Reading an archaeology report just not that long ago, which I do periodically, kind of a geek like that. 
And not that long ago, they found an ossuary. Do you know what an ossuary is? An ossuary is where the Jews would take a body and they would lay it in a tomb and they would allow for the decomposition to happen where the body would completely erase itself. They do this to honor the belief in the resurrection. And then when all that is left is bones, they would take the bones of those individuals and they put it in a small box called an ossuary. And they put those bones in a box called an ossuary so that, so that there's room in tombs because tombs are so expensive. And then they take those boxes and they stack them side by side with their family members. And they would engrave in the top of the box the name of the family member. And in the top of a box they found, not that long ago, it says, Joseph Caiaphas. And when you read one of the greatest historians in the world, Josephus Flavius, he says that the high priest that crucified Jesus Christ in that day was named Joseph Caiaphas. And they found the ossuary of the high priest's body that put Jesus on the cross. And they would lay that body in a tomb. In this case, it was a rich man's tomb. It was borrowed. He didn't need it. He was going to be there three days. And they would take a six-foot-by-six-foot rock and roll it in front of that stone, and then they would take golden cords and wrap it around it and tie it in a knot and put wax on it, hot wax, and somebody with a signet ring of Caesar, not even of Pilate, but of Caesar, would put that emblem into that wax, saying that the one that broke that seal, the punishment is going to be death. Now, little did they know, the one who was going to break it, they'd already tried death, and it was not of any consequence. When you go to the garden tomb, there's a trough where that stone would roll in front of that tomb, and there's a window that would look in where sun could come down into the tomb. Remember, the women went and told the men, and, and John and Peter went running to the grave, and as John and Peter went running to the grave, John outran Peter. Maybe Peter was fat, smoker or something, but John beat him. But John was analytical, and he stood outside taking it in and watching and just thinking about what had happened. Peter was more like me, and he, he was ADD. He ran right into the middle of the tomb. Never found the stone from that particular tomb. And when you look at Matthew, he uses a word kalua, which means the stone was moved. Mark adds a prefix, apa kalua, which means the stone was moved a distance. Luke uses a different prefix, ana kalua, which means the stone was moved a great distance. John uses the word, who was, by the way, the first man to the tomb. John uses the word aero, A-E-R-O, which is where we get our word airplane or aerodynamic, which they think means the stone flew off of the grave. Some scholars believe that it flew with such velocity that it went and reached a cliff 20 feet away and shattered on a cliff and was destroyed. And in that morning, Jesus heard the voice of his father when his daddy said, get up, son. And he did. And Jesus showed up in a resurrected state. And he had to tell some people to tell some people to tell some people. And he knew that he better tell women first. <laughs> he wanted the word to spread. And I think he knew that they wouldn't get sidetracked on their way to deliver the message and start cleaning the garage. And so they, he told women and said, go tell the story. And they went and told the story. And Jesus, in that resurrected state, 
trying to make a decision, which man am I going to go see first? When you look at John chapter 21, uh, the, the heading in my Bible over that passage of Scripture says the epilogue, Jesus was seen. That's the title over that chapter, which I love. And in verse 1 of John 21, it says, Later Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter. And when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and Paul goes on in verses 1 through 8, 9, 10, somewhere in there, he says that, that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, and three days later he rose again according to the Scriptures. He was buried in a grave. That whole story, he, he paints all of that. And, and then he comes back and he says, and then he appeared to Simon Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, and then he appeared to five hundred at one time. And in every account, it points out the fact that Simon Peter was there, and Simon Peter was first. Why, Peter? Remember the Last Supper? One of you is going to deny me. Peter chimed in and said, not me. Jesus, shh, shh, shh. talking to you my dude daughter from Ethiopia they don't say shh they say oosh oosh and maybe Jesus in that moment said to Peter oosh 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 not talking to you Peter one of you is going to deny me no 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 not me I would never deny you careful, Peter. Never deny you. Jesus on the garden was arrested. They take him and put him on trial for his life and the Bible says that John followed along behind and John knew the high priest and so he knew the girl working the gate at Caiaphas' house and so he was permitted to go into the courtyard. Peter was not. But John went back and talked to the girl and said, please let him in. And they let Peter into the gate. And that girl working the gate at the courtyard of Caiaphas' house looked at him and said, you're one of the twelve, aren't you? He said, no, 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 I'm not. And as they warmed their hands around a charcoal fire, it was a cold night. Jesus on trial for his life in Caiaphas' house. little girl on her way to run an errand said, you're, you're one of the twelve. He said, no, 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 I'm not. Somebody standing around that fire looked at him and said, wait a minute. You are. Just a few hours ago, you cut my cousin Malchus's ear off. You're one of the twelve. The Bible says he cursed and said, no, I'm not. And at that moment, the rooster crowed, which Jesus had declared the night before. Before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. His eyes met the eyes of Jesus through that window. And his heart broke and he ran away. And you pick the story back up in John 21 where Jesus, Peter shows up at the Sea of Galilee and he says, I'm done, I'm going back fishing. It's over. He's dead and gone. I'm going back fishing. I'm finished. And Jesus in that moment said, who am I going to go see first? Peter. He needs to see me really, really bad. 
You know when Peter ran into that grave? It says he stood there with the grave clothes folded. Who took time on resurrection morning to fold the clothes? But Jesus was a Jew. And the custom for a Jewish master at the dinner table for their servants was when I wad up my napkin and throw it on the table, that means we're done, you can clear the table. But if I want to get up and walk around and digest and show people my view from my balcony, and we're coming back to the table for dessert or for coffee, I will take my napkin and I will fold it, and I will lay it on my plate folded, which means we're not done here, I'm coming back. And Jesus in that grave had communicated to his boys, they will lay me down and they will kill me, but three days later I will come back and I will rise again. And just in case they had forgotten, which apparently they had all day Saturday. When they showed up to the grave, Jesus had taken the grave clothes and folded them to say, we're not done here. I'm coming back. And I know this story today for you does not answer all of the questions for all of the skeptics. And maybe you're here today in one of our environments in Pryor, in our chapel, in this campus, in uh, one of the ten environments we're doing this weekend. You, you, you're here. Or maybe you're just watching by the Internet today and you're hearing what I'm saying. You're saying it's moving, but, but I don't know. And, and you're skeptical about the story of Christ. And I have meals sometimes with people who are skeptics. Sometimes a young adult will look at me at a table over a meal and say, but what about all the people in Africa? How could a loving God make a way that's not known to all the people in Africa? Great question. To which I respond and say, oh, you, you care about the people of Africa. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Tell me about your last trip to Africa. So, oh, oh, I've never been. I thought you said you care about the people of Africa. Oh, I, I do. You, you know what? I, I've been to Africa. I know lots of people who've been to Africa. I know people who've moved to Africa. And you know the reason I go back and the reason I give money and the reason we send mission teams to Africa? You know why? Because the God who lives inside of me loves the people of Africa and because he loves the people of Africa, he wants to love them through me. And he wants to love them through you. And he made a way, not just for the western part of the world. You've got to remember this story didn't start in the west. This happened not too far from Africa. And it's a message for the whole world. It could not get any more fair to say there's one way for everybody. Bow your knee to Jesus, the King of Kings. And confess with your mouth that Jesus is not just the Lord, but He's my Lord. 
believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you, you will be saved. Here's the question. As we've looked at before, during, and after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the question is, is what are you going to do with it? And maybe before today and before this morning, you were thinking about your dress or your hat or should I wear white in the rain? Eggs or lunch? But my prayer has been that you would encounter the cross of Jesus today that made a way for everybody. And the question really is what are you going to do after? of Jesus and what really happened there because the cross can change the trajectory of your life for eternity one way or the other what are you going to do with it and with the question that Pilate asked on that day that's still ringing through time into these rooms and environments this morning, what then shall I do with Jesus? Would you pray with me? As we get real still, every environment, whether you're watching on video or you're live in a room today, Would you draw a circle around yourself and pretend you're the only one under the sound of my voice? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Are you experiencing the power of the resurrection in your life? Are you experiencing everything that Jesus died to provide you? Have you come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And if you're here today and you say, Pastor, please pray for me that I could settle this. Pray that I could settle it. I want to know, but I don't have peace. Would you just raise your hand in every environment today? Say, that's me. I, I, I want to know. Would you just slip your hand up all across the room? Okay children, some men, some women, anybody else? Pray for me. And our prayer all along has been, could Easter not be a day that we fill the building and we dress up, but it, could it be a day of salvation for people who need Christ? And today, if you want to give your life to Jesus, would you just pray with me right where you're seated and say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, and today I ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord. You call the shots in my life. Come in as my Savior, my forgiver, my best friend. And the best way that I know how 
best I understand it. I give my life to you. And I want to thank you for saving me. And I want to thank you, Jesus, that you were not embarrassed or ashamed of me. But you died on a cross naked in a public place on my behalf. Would you help me in this moment to not be ashamed of you? Thank you for saving me. 